And um, most of us know, when it comes to statistics, our favorite topic in the world, that uh, they can be helpful, they can be a hindrance, uh, and occasionally can be quite humorous as well. So for example, did you know that half of everybody that you know is above average? Um, I won't say anything about the other half. 42.7% um, of all statistics are made up on the spot. And uh, one of my favorite ones, Banksy's one, a recent survey of North American males found that 42% were overweight, 34% were critically obese, and 8% ate the survey. And uh, however, when it comes to um, the UK, and we look at how many people are Christians, how many people are go to church, worship regularly uh, on, a, on a, some sort of a kind of at least once a, a month kind of basis, the percentage is 6%, right? And that might not surprise us. Maybe we're aware that the percentage is quite low. Um, but it can also be a challenge when we realize that we're living with the other 94% uh, where we find ourselves uh, through the week in a whole variety of ones. There's a great line from uh, the James Bond film, uh, Goldfinger, when uh, Bond is threatened by the high-power laser, and he, he asks Goldfinger, he says, do you expect me to talk? And he says, no, Mr. Bond, we expect you to die. <laughs> and uh, I think when it comes to people in the world, that's what they expect of the church. They think 6%, it'll be 5%, it'll be 4%, it will be gone, uh, just like the ice coming off Greenland at the moment. And um, paradoxically, though, the church continues to have an amazing impact upon our society. For example, who runs free holiday clubs for 2 million children? Who runs 50,000 youth groups? Who has twice as many youth workers as the government? Who? Who cares? Christians through the church. Who visits 450,000 housebound people a week? Who visits 350,000 people in hospital a week? Who runs 12,000 drop-in centers and 20,000 parent and toddler groups? Who? Who cares? Christians through churches. And the percentage of worshipers at churches may be in decline generally, but it delivers a huge spoonful of hope and love to our communities. And the key issue here is not the survival of some institution, the church as we know it, some historical institution. What really matters is the eternal destiny and the present well-being of 66 million people across this nation. Can we make a difference? Uh, Erica Chenoweth did some research, and she researched both violent campaigns and non-violent campaigns. And she actually discovered that non-violent campaigns were generally more effective uh, um, when she looked at hundreds of different situations. And she came up with this rule called the 3.5% rule. So as she researched several hundred nonviolent campaigns and uprisings around the world, um, that's what she came up with. So for example, there was the singing revolution of Estonia in the 80s, when hundreds of thousands of Estonians gathered publicly and sang national songs and hymns um, in their struggle for their freedom from the Soviets. Um, I read this article. The censorship was extremely strict in the Soviet Union, and any signs of independent and patriotic thinking were punished. However, starting in 1987, the Soviet Union, with all of its weapons and power, could not control the Estonians' desire for freedom anymore. They started to gather in public places, singing their songs and hymns. These spontaneous national gatherings grew bigger, with Estonians joining in spirits in Tallinn, 
openly expressing their intent to become a free nation through their national songs. There was also in Georgia, the, uh, what was known as the, the Rose Revolution. And uh, in Georgia in 2003, um, they kind of protested against the elections um, of the day and disputed the parliamentary whatevers. And uh, then they marched on Tbilisi with, with red roses. This is such a powerful picture in hand. And what she discovered as she looked at all of these different situations, that there weren't any that failed after they'd achieved 3.5% participation after a peak, during a peak event. Now, 3.5% of a population may be no mean feat, but it begins to put the 6% in perspective and the difference that we can make. 6% is the same as about 1 in 16 people. So if one Christian influences 15 others, 16 others, then all 66 million citizens of the UK are influenced by the gospel. Okay, who here doesn't know 15 people who are yet to step inside a church or step into a place of worship and begin that journey for themselves? And uh, the statistics were even smaller in the early church, okay, across Turkey and the Gentile world. And that's how Peter starts his first letter. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, he doesn't use a percentage, but you get the impression they are pretty sparse. Okay? They are very much uh, on their own and out there in this particular thing. And I want to pull out some key points. First of all, they are God's elect, says Peter. And as you read through the Old Testament, um, it becomes very clear that God's purpose from Genesis 12 onwards was to have a people that he would bless and they would be a blessing to the nations around. And uh, the people that Peter, Peter is writing to are not all from a Jewish background. They're not all from Jewish birth, and yet he's writing to them, and he's including them in this sense of God's ongoing story, God's intention, and he uses this, this language of calling to say, you have been chosen, you have been chosen to be blessed, and you have been chosen to be a blessing wherever you find yourselves. Whatever our journey of faith in Jesus was, when we surrender and ask Jesus to lead our lives, we become part of his called people, God's elect. So on the PowerPoint, it's the red dots, okay? We're represented here by the red dots. The red dots visualize the statistic that we've looked at, that 6% of people worship in a Christian church once a month or more. So six out of every hundred. Okay, it's not many, but as we've seen, it's significant. And when we gather, as we do today, um, in, in a church or in a service like this, we remind ourselves that we belong and believe a particular story about our world. We believe that there is a God and that he designed this world. He, um, he made this world. He brought it into being and he gave us responsibility uh, over it in this place. We believe it's a broken world because of sin and mankind's desire to go his own way, live an independent life and self-centered uh, kind of living that we have. We believe that Jesus' death means there's hope, that there is a possibility of new life possible. And we believe that one day he will transform the whole thing. And we live out our lives with this story and with this belief day by day as people who have a distinct story in our culture, surrounded by people who may not believe any of that. We are the red dots in this diagram. And when we gather on a Sunday, we do so to strengthen one another, to encourage one another, 
to be the people that we are, God's people, God's chosen people. So we're not just any of those dots. We and you are the red dots, distinct. The second thing that Peter says is they are exiles. And this second term comes from that great disaster in the Old Testament where Israel lost their land. They forfeited their land and they were sent into, uh, they were captured by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies. They were sent into Babylon. Uh, you know, the story of David and Daniel and all the rest of it. Um, and at first, they hoped for a quick return. They thought, okay, we've gone to Babylon. We're going to get back quickly. But the prophet said, no, okay, it's not going to be that quick, guys. In fact, very few of this first generation will make it back, um, such as uh, what will happen. But while you're there, you're to remain distinct and you are to be a blessing in the place that you find yourself. Jeremiah 29. And today, each one of us finds ourselves scattered for most of the week. You know, we, uh, we're in different places of work. We're in different parts of town. We're in different parts of the city. We're not in that little gathered corner, but actually we find ourselves out wherever we find ourselves. Um, you might be the only disciple, the only follower of Jesus in your place of work, in your office, at home even, in your family, um, in your classroom, in your sports team, in your street, at your, in your class at school or college or university, whatever it might be. Okay, these are the places where we are called to shine like stars in the universe, as uh, Paul and Timothy put it in Philippians 2. It's important that we don't gray out, but that we remain as the red dots. We remain distinct from everything around. We don't lose that distinctiveness and become the same as our surrounding culture. And God has got a plan for placing us in the scattered context that we find ourselves. And so the term frontline has been coined to describe the places where you are. So I visited Charlie not so long back in his, his kitchen place in the center of town and met one of the guys who works there. You know, you all live in, in different places. Um, you're involved in different things. The RPA guys are going into schools and doing different things there. Lots of different ways in which we do that. And whether you're a school child or whether you're a retiree, we are all scattered by God. We all have a front line where we live uh, and where we work. The danger is that we fail to recognize it. Okay? And we, we come to church on a Sunday and we put in our light bulbs, you know, and we shine very brightly when we're gathered together. But then as we leave, we, we unscrew our light bulbs and we keep it hidden in our pockets. And it doesn't really shine out there when actually we are called to let it shine like stars. So we're God's people. We're called um, to be those red dots, as it were. And we are also exiles who are scattered. We're not to have that ghetto mentality, but we are to embrace being a scattered people where we find ourselves. But we also encourage one another when we do gather together as well. And uh, Peter then, out of all of that, he then concludes, I know this is only the beginning of the letter, but he concludes in that second verse um, of his opening with a reminder of the amazing work of the, the whole trinity of God uh, in our lives. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son. Um, let's look at it again. So uh, verse 2 there. Okay, so to God's elect exiles scattered through, throughout the provinces who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. First of all, 
God's foreknowledge. Your situations are very different, but they are known to God. Okay, whatever the unique situation you find yourself in, it is known to God. God knows your temperament. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. All of them are known to God. He knows the challenges that you face in your, in your Mondays to Saturdays or wherever. Okay, he is engaged with you in that place, as Mary's, even this week, has just become even more aware of. Um, um, he knows where you are as that red dot, um, where you're placed, and it's strategic in all that God. God's foreknowledge that is with you. Secondly, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And that just simply means to be set apart. Okay, we've been set apart for special use. You know, when they, they um, sanctified things in the Old Testament, it was usually some utensil in the temple. Set apart for special use. So you are not any dot, you are a red dot. Okay, God wants to keep us uh, red, in a sense. And, uh, and so the Spirit does that. We, as we live pure lives, as we live with honesty and with integrity and with purity, um, as we live out the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit that keep us red and keep us shining, if you like. You know, as we consecrate our lives, as we dedicate our lives each day afresh to say, God, I'm, I'm here for you. Will you use me uh, in this place? Whatever that looks like, I want to work well for you um, as well as um, share my, my life well as well. And uh, we depend upon him. We're empowered by God's Spirit as he leads us, as is all the sanctifying work of the Spirit, as he makes us brighter and brighter uh, each day. And then thirdly, the confidence that we have in our relationship with God. The sprinkling of his blood, as Peter says. is So that refers to what Jesus has done. He's given his life for us. He's shed his blood for us. But it's a picture of the Old Testament where they sprinkled things with blood to to set them apart in a sense. And it was, it's a symbol of God's covenant love. Okay? His unconditional love, the new covenant, the new testament in Jesus' blood that we celebrate whenever we have communion. His absolute unconditional love for you. His never-ending eternal love that he has for you. There is no doubt um, that he accepts us, that he forgives us, that he loves us. And we can be confident in, in that we are his people um, wherever we find ourselves. God is with you, but God is also for you in what you're doing. And he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. So you are blessed and you are to be a blessing where you find yourself. I want to finish um, with something called the Nimrod principle. And this comes from Genesis chapter 10 and verses 8 and 9. Let me just read this, these two verses. Cush, Cush was a father there's the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And he highlights two things here that are striking. Firstly, Nimrod was just a hunter. I doubt we've got any hunters here today, but you might do. Um, he was only a hunter, but he gets his name in God's book because he's a mighty hunter. And he did his hunting, secondly, before the Lord. Somehow, he saw himself as being accountable to God for how he did his hunting. Okay? What, that was his job. That is what his, his life was about. 
And so we can think for a moment about our own jobs, the, own, the things that we do through the week, whether it's paid, whether it's unpaid, or whether it's a job, whether it's a, a role we find ourselves having in society in some way. And uh, just to think about that and put the phrase mighty in front of it and the phrase before the Lord. So for example, there's someone came up with this morning, James, a mighty GP before the Lord. Okay, there's, there's one, one of us. Mary, a mighty carer before the Lord. She's a GP as well, but uh, a mighty carer before the Lord. Tim, a mighty school teacher before the Lord. Agnes, a mighty solicitor before the Lord. And so just what would yours be? Okay, what would yours be? What is your sort of nine to five? What's the most of the time you spend during the week? And just think of that for yourself. You are a mighty whatever before the Lord. Accountable to God for the way that we carry out our frontline calling. Let's pray.